Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 220, The Great Battles of Russian History, Part 1. Last time, I interviewed the author of the book, The Empress and the English Doctor, Lucy Ward. Today, we'll discuss the great battles and sieges that molded Russia. But before we get there, I just want to tell you that I'm going to be accepting advertising into the podcast, uh, but it's kind of a unique new system that's being developed by my pod hoster, Buzzsprout. What they do is they put out some uh, possible advertisers. I approve them to see if they fit in with uh, my audience. They put it into the episode for me, and then when there's enough downloads of the episode, they'll take the ad out. So it doesn't linger there forever. It's a way for me to pay for the expenses of the podcast and the hosting. And I've added a couple of new features, um, kind of a mix master, which is supposed to improve the sound quality of the podcast. And all those expenses add up. So I just wanted to warn you about that and uh, give you a heads up when you hear it. Uh, so let's get to the podcast topic. Over the centuries of Russian history, there have been many military battles that helped shape the country's history. Today, we will only be discussing those engagements before the fall of the Romanovs. I've chosen 12 of what I think are the most critical and influential confrontations of all time. These include, in chronological order, the Battle of Kalka River, the Battle of Sit River, Kulikova, the Siege of Kazan, the Battle of Klushino, Moscow, Poltava, Pruth, the Siege of Ismail, Borodino, Aslandus, and Tsushima. All of these had a significant influence on the future of Russia. But still, one that I will get to soon is one I believe, had it been lost, would have caused the Russia that we know today to be vastly different, and maybe, just maybe, not exist at all. The first battle we will cover today is the Battle of Kalka River. It occurred on May 31st, 1223, between the forces led by Mstislav the Bold and Mstislav III of Kiev, versus the invading Mongols led by Generals Jebe and Subutai. Fought on the banks of the Kalka River in the Donetsk region of present-day eastern Ukraine. This is where the the heavy fighting between the Ukrainians and the Russians are going on this very day. Now, there are two reasons why this battle was so influential. The first is the most obvious one. With an estimated twenty to 23,000 troops, the Mongols overwhelmed the combined forces of the municipalities of Kiev, Galicia of Volhynia, Chernigov, and Smolensk, along with a number of Cuman warriors. How many men were on the side of the Rus is hotly debated amongst historians. I've seen counts as low as 8,000, which I find highly unlikely, all the way up to 80,000, which is equally absurd. The number I feel is most likely is around 15,000 at best. The problem that the defenders had was poor cooperation between the leaders of the cities that sent troops to the conflict. The previous decade saw Kievan Rus begin to fall apart due to civil wars 
and the decline of the Byzantine Empire, their major trading partner. As a result, the competing cities had a great deal of mistrust between themselves. The response was somewhat tepid when the call came to gather forces against an impending invasion. The Cumans, a long-time enemy, were the ones to warn the Rus of the Mongol threat. This led some to wonder if this was real or deception on the part of the Cumans. This was quickly dismissed as word of the Mongol victories in the Caucasus began to circulate. Another issue that would lead to the Rus's defeat was their overconfidence. They felt that God was on their side, and that, given this, they would easily defeat their heathen enemies. The outcome of the Battle of the Kalka River was not only decided by the superiority of the forces on the side of the Mongols, but, most importantly, due to their brilliant tactics. They attacked the armies of the Rus with their typical hit-and-run ambushes, inflicting minor damage. After about nine days of this, they decided to retreat eastward, giving the appearance that they were giving up on their invasion plans. Instead, they left a rearguard force of about 5,000 men to draw the Rus forward. After luring their enemies further towards their hidden main force, the Mongols turned around and attacked head-on. Unfortunately, the Rus also did not know that the Cumans were convinced to abandon the field of battle, being reminded that they were fellow Turks. This significantly weakened the Rus. The ensuing battle was a rout and slaughter. After the Rus' first line of warriors crossed the Kalka River, that's when the Mongols attacked in full force. With no reinforcements available, the Rus' forces collapsed. They began a hasty retreat with the Mongols in hot pursuit. Many of the princes were killed, with a few captured. The number of men killed on the side of the Rus is another estimate that is wildly divergent figures. The most reliable, in my opinion, is from the Novgorodian First Chronicle, which claims that only one in ten men returned alive. This would indicate that the entire army of the Rus was devastated. Mysteriously to the Rus, the Mongols returned to their homeland. Some of the princes who survived believed that they scared the enemies away. Well, this would prove to be a fool's belief. In 1237, the Mongols would begin to make their way back to the land of the Rus, led by Subatai and Batu Khan, along with a much larger contingent of 120,000 men to complete the invasion and take over the country beginning in 1240 until 1480. Our second major conflict occurred on March 4, 1238. While a much smaller encounter with the Mongols, this battle would mark the end of any real resistance to the invaders for about 150 years. The Battle of the Sit River would see the final destruction of the forces of the Rus at the hands of the Mongols. Yuri II, the fourth Grand Prince of Vladimir, and third son of Vesvilad III, also known as the Big Nest, would lead a force of approximately 3,000 men to oppose the Mongol force led by Burundi with 10,000 men. The city of Vladimir was under siege, and Yuri somehow believed that he could block or break the blockade. 
Instead, it would be to prove to be his undoing. The Battle of the Sit River took place on March 4, 1238, in what is now the Yaroslavl Oblast. The entirety of Yuri's forces was wiped out, with the prince dying as well. The importance of this battle is that it proved to the Rus that, quote-unquote, resistance is futile. There would be no unified forces put together to oppose the Mongols for several subsequent generations. The curtain of isolation would envelop Russia until the next battle would, that would take place, that we're going to talk about, and that one took place on September 8th, 1380. The Battle of Kulakova would prove to the Rus that the opposition to the control of the Mongols was possible and that they had finally had an opportunity to throw off the yoke imposed on them in 1238. What they needed and got was a leader who could not only devise a strategy to defeat the Mongols, but a man who would inspire his people to believe in themselves. In Russian history, this man would go down as one of their most popular figures, Dmitry Donskoy. There are three significant reasons why the Battle of Kulikova was an important turning point in Russian history. It marks the first time that Moscow was mentioned as an independent country. Muscovy had previously been only a backwater town with little power or influence on its neighbors. Secondly, the aftermath of the conflict made the Grand Prince of Moscow the most important ruler in what was to become Russia. Thirdly, while not marking the end of the influence of the Golden Horde on the land of the Rus, it was a turning point and helped to hasten the collapse of the Mongol yoke. In 1359, a civil war within the Golden Horde broke out. One of the leaders was Mamai, who would take hold of the western half of the Mongol Empire. Because he was not a direct descendant of Genghis Khan, his control of the region was somewhat tenuous. He would have to fight constantly to maintain his position. This internal strife within the Horde was felt by the major powers of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the Grand Duchy of Moscow, and the Grand Duchy of Ryazan. They were all eager to rid themselves of their Mongol overlords, but they were also cautious. Nevertheless, the Horde was still a formidable force, they would have no problem wiping out any perceived enemies, despite the infighting. The backdrop to the Battle of Kulikova was the fighting between Prince Mikhail of Tver and Prince Dmitri of Moscow, over who would control the Grand Duchy of Vladimir. Mamai would sell the right to Vladimir to the highest bidder, and this would go back and forth between the two princes. Finally, Dmitri had enough and invaded Tver, which forced Mikhail to relinquish his rights to Vladimir and agree to back Dmitri in his feud against Mamai. Starting in 1734, Dmitri began his fight against the forces of Mamai, gaining a string of victories. Mamai, for his part, was feeling pressure from another Mongol warlord, Toktamayash, who had taken control of the eastern side of the Golden Horde. Toktamayash had the support of Tamerlane. Mamai decided in 1378 that he was going to punish Dmitri 
and forced him to restart paying the annual tribute that was supposed to be paid and was not. Sending a force of Tatar warriors led by the warlord Murza Begic, the horde suffered a humiliating defeat at the Battle of the Voja River. This marked the first time a Russian army defeated a Tatar force, giving the Muscovites a boost in confidence that they could stand up to their overlords. This defeat also caused Mamai to lose face, which he had to avenge. For the next two years, he would gather forces to punish Dmitri and regain his foothold as the unchallenged leader of the western half of the Golden Horde. This two-year preparation would lead to the confrontation at Kulikova. As with most battles of this era, no one can honestly say how many warriors were on either side, with the estimates ranging from 30,000 to 150,000 men fighting for the Rus and the same number of Tatars. It is doubtful that the number is anything more than about 36,000 men on each side from what I saw in my research. The two sides seem to be at equal strength, whatever the actual number is. Mamai, in preparation for his fight against the combined forces of the many princes of the land of the Rus, and entered into an alliance with Prince Chogelia of Lithuania. Lithuania at the time, they were expanding, and they viewed Moscow as a significant threat to their plans. Still, they were not entirely enthusiastic partners with the Horde, as they knew that they were also a threat. The exact location of the Battle of Kulikova is unknown. Still, it seems that a sizable clear field beyond the Don River and near the mouth of the Nepradava River is the likely place where the battle took place. The location was to be in favor of the Russians, as it was smaller than what the Tatars would have liked. As a result, they were unable to utilize their usual tactics of freewheeling cavalry attacking in waves. The fighting which ensued was man-to-man, with horrendous losses of life on both sides. And just about the time when it seemed that the Horde was about to win, the Russian cavalry launched a surprise counter-strike that routed the Tatars. They would retreat in a panic, with the army of the Rus following them for about 50 kilometers. If you wonder what happened to the Lithuanian army, so did Mamai. When Prince Jagelia found out about the Tatar loss, his army, which wasn't very far away, turned around and headed home. Mamai was now in deep trouble as his rival, Tok Tomayish, took control of the entirety of the Golden Horde. He would destroy Mamai's men, what was left of them, and kill his his enemy, but he would retaliate retaliate against Dmitri, burning down Moscow in thirteen eighty two, which meant that tribute needed to be paid to the new boss. That would last less than one hundred years. In fifteen fifty two, the Golden Horde was no more. It had been broken up into three separate yet allied groups, 
The Crimean, Kazan, and Astrakhan Khanates were thorns in the side of the Russian people. They were raiding the lands, especially what is now Ukraine. Finally, the Tsar Ivan IV, a.k.a. Ivan the Terrible, was fed up with this and vowed to destroy his enemies once and for all. His first target was the fortress city of Kazan. The siege of Kazan would start on September 2nd, 1552, and last until October 13th. Beginning in 1469, the Muscovites had tried to subdue Kazan unsuccessfully nine times. Supply issues and the well-built fortress kept causing problems for the Russians. Finally, in 1552, Ivan and his generals, along with many European advisors and engineers, came up with a plan to destroy the outpost. We now finally have a pretty accurate number of participants in the siege. On the Muscovite side, there were around 150,000 men, along with 150 cannons and many siege towers. Opposed to them were approximately 50,000 men and about another 200,000 elderly men, women, and children. The walls of Kazan were thick and tall, but the newly acquired cannons that the Russian artillery had at their disposal guaranteed that the walls would eventually disintegrate. Adding to the fort's bombardment were sappers. These were men who would dig underneath the walls, and they would undermine the integrity of the walls until they finally collapsed on October 2nd, allowing the Russian army to enter the city. Hand-to-hand fighting continued for the next 11 days until the town was finally under Muscovite control. Over 50,000 people of Kazan were killed, with 190,000 taken as prisoners. The people of Kazan were then assimilated into the growing Russian Empire. And one of the things that you have to understand is that in the background, there were still a lot of you know, Kazan fighters, especially cavalry in the forests surrounding that area, and they would harass the uh, Rus troops for quite a long time, but they were eventually subdued as well. Now, these people who were assimilated into the Russian Empire, they were banned from certain occupations, and there were many who were resettled far away from their original homeland. And this would be a recurring policy of Russia that goes on to this day as it grew bigger. Stalin would use the concept of resettlement of ethnic minorities control parts of the Soviet Union. It would lead to hundreds of thousands of deaths and misery for those who moved away from their ancestral lands. Moving forward 58 years, we come across a significant defeat to the Russian army during the time of troubles. On July 4, 1610, a Polish army of about 7,000 men routed a far larger army of Russians, numbering between thirty to 35,000. The head of the Russian military, Tsar Dmitry Shuisky, would be fooled by the Poles, wasting his numerical superiority because of fear that reinforcements were coming to aid his adversaries when, in reality, none were coming. 
The battle is one where the Poles could have changed the course of history had they taken advantage of their win. Many have wondered why they didn't continue towards Moscow and ultimately destroy the Russian army, which they could have easily accomplished. The truth of the matter is, as was the case with many conflicts during this period, the men who fought in the battle were exhausted. Instead, they just declared victory and proclaimed their leader, the Polish Prince of the Commonwealth, Vyadislav IV Waza, as the new Tsar of Russia. From 1610 until about 1634, he held the title, but never really had any power. The aftermath of the battle saw Vasily IV Shuisky lose his power as Tsar and hastened the end of the Time of Troubles in 1613. The people saw a need for strong Tsar, especially after the next important confrontation took place, the Battle of Moscow. On September 1st through the 3rd, 1612, it pitted the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, commanded by Field Hetman of Lithuania, Jan Karol Chudkowitz, while the Russians were led by Prince Dmitry Pozarski. The Poles were nominal rulers of Moscow, hailed as liberators by some boyars, but despised by many, especially outside of the capital. In March 1611, the First People's Militia, led by Prokopi Lyoponov, a Ryazan-born noble, tried and failed to take Moscow. The reason for the poor showing was the lack of coordination and that the fighters on the Russian side were poorly trained and equipped. Shortly after the battle, Lyapunov would be murdered by the Cossack leader, Ivan Zorutsky. A second people's militia was then organized by the citizens of Nizhny Novgorod, who were led by one person who had become a true Russian hero, Kuzma Minin. Minin was a butcher by trade, but highly respected by his fellow merchants. They would choose him and Prince Pozarski to lead the fight against the occupying Polish-Lithuanian army. The Russians would muster a solid 12,500 men, of whom 2,500 were Cossacks. The Polish-Lithuanian contingent had some 3,000 men in Moscow and about 12,000 men in the relief army. Beginning in 1612, the Second People's Militia began to besiege the Polish army holed up in the Kremlin. A relief army was sent by Polish leader Hetman Jan Karol Kodowicz. On September 1st, they tried unsuccessfully to break through the Russian lines, succeeding momentarily. However, they were unable to relieve the Polish garrison. About 1,000 men lost their lives on each side that day. A second attempt was made on September 3rd, but that was also repulsed when the Poles, with the Poles losing a significant number of men, causing the need for a hasty retreat. The men in the Kremlin bravely held out until November 7th, finally running out of food and supplies. When the king of the Commonwealth, King Sigismund III, heard of the defeat a month later, he decided to just go back home for reasons no one knows even though they were only about 30 kilometers away. Had they decided to attack, the Russians would have had a hard time defending their positions. It is one of the great mysteries of history that has many of historians like me quite puzzled. 
Well, you know, in the beginning, I told you that I would have one battle which would change. Could if had the Russians lost, would have changed. You know, history, maybe all of Russia. And you could see there were a few of them here had they gone a different way. But there's one that we're going to talk about next week or next episode that really was a turning point and baffled historians more than any other battle that happened. And it caused a lot of problems for the Ottomans, especially the man who uh, would lose or win the battle and lose the war. Uh and we're going to talk about that in the next episode. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope the uh, ads are not too disturbing to you. I think it's just a nice way of you know introducing you to different podcasts and different ideas that are coming out every day. So join me next time when we cover the remaining six battles that shaped the course of Russian history. So until next time, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.